Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Coming to Dallas, Texas, September 14th, 15th, and 16th, 2018, the Blockchain and Future Tech Expo. This is going to be a gigantic conference of over 5,000 people. We're going to be talking about blockchain and its applications. We're going to be talking about quantum computing, cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, and several other future technologies that are poised to and actually changing our lives as we speak. Here's why you should attend. As you may know, early adopters are the ones that investigated and profited from things like the gold rush in the 1800s, from the dot-com boom in the 1990s, from the internet boom in 2005, from the smartphone explosion in 2007, from the real estate boom that ended in 2008, and of course, from the Bitcoin boom that started in 2012. Early adopters act now. They don't wait till later. They go out west first in their covered wagons. They find the biggest gold nuggets. If you consider yourself an early adopter and you want to find the biggest nuggets, then you owe it to yourself to attend this upcoming conference. Blockchain is going to affect how we control and store our medical data, how we send money around the world, how we bank, and more. But artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and cybersecurity will play a pivotal role in our lives as well. And that's why our next event, September 14th to the 16th at the Dallas Convention Center, is going to have not only 5,000 plus attendees, but we'll showcase blockchain, AI, cybersecurity, quantum computing, and more. You want to get in on the coming gold rush of future tech and opportunity as an early adopter. Don't be left out. To register, go to bftexpo.com. That's blockchainfuturetechexpo.com. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. I have a returning guest. Um, her name is still difficult to pronounce, but I'll try. It's Anita Schulzweide um, from iris.ai. She's the CEO and founder. And we're going to be talking about, again, the basics of iris.ai a little bit. And then we want to get into Project IR, which is like a blockchain-related uh, new project that she's working on. So, Anita, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Good. Yeah, thanks for coming back. Um, you know, to refresh audiences, can you go over the basic premise of iris.ai and, you know, and how it works? Absolutely. Um, so a little bit of backstory. We're a three-year-old company. We got founded at Singularity University and we, um, we're an impact company and we set out to, um, do our little part in changing the world of science. Uh, it is a, uh, an important, but, but quite, um, in many ways dysfunctional uh, industry, if we want to call it that. Um, and so the first thing that we decided to tackle was this, let's call it information overload. There is so much scientific research out there you know, hundreds of millions of academic papers and other kinds of documents, but it is impossible to navigate unless you're a deep, deep, deep domain expert, in which case you won't end up doing interdisciplinary research. So hmm. the past three years, we've developed um, a couple of different tools uh, to do uh, the, the geeky term is semi-automation of the systematic research landscape mapping, or uh, said simpler, taking you from, hey, I have this problem I need to to find the right research to solve, to actually 
you know, branching out, finding a variety of interdisciplinary research, and then narrowing it down to a very precise reading list. Uh, and those are two two kind of process tools that we've built to do this, using natural language processing to to uh, build out a contextual understanding of your problem and, and match you with research. Well, right now, the public, you know, including myself, I mean, we use Google, and Google will suggest, oh, if you're searching for, um, you know, I don't know, thyroid cancer, you know, people search also for this, that, or the other. But yours is different. It goes into the actual scientific papers on a topic, right? And it kind of does something similar? And sort of. So so obviously the, the kind of closest Google tool uh, to compare with is Google Scholar, which is a, you know, search word, keyword based tool where you go in and you, you know what you look for. You, you put in your keywords and you, you try to find it. Uh, the problem with Google Scholar is the moment you don't know what you look for, and, and of course, as, as with any Google search, how many how many pages do you go through before you feel like you 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 know wandered off topic? Uh, so we've actually done a number of experiments with with um, to to compare with Google Scholar because you know we built you know we built this cool back end tech you know natural language understanding and all that and we have a, a very visual front end as well um, you, for for the listeners you can check it out on our website uh, there's a free tool available and it's a very visual tool and we're like that's great but does it work you know <laughs> it's a million dollar question so so what we've done is we've done these experiments where we have multiple teams competing competing against each other to solve an, an R&D challenge over a set number of hours. And, and we've been able to prove that uh, the short story is that the more a tool, uh, the more a, a team uses our tools compared to Google Scholar or PubMed, the better they perform. So it's this consistent outperformance using our tool compared uh, with these other kind of um, standard tools that are out there today. So what's an example of a contest you did and, and why you know, does your tool work better? What is it that it's doing that allows people to find answers better, faster? Yeah, so, so there's a couple of examples. So one is, uh, one of the first ones we did was this, um, can we build a reusable rocket out of composite materials? And it, it's still my favorite example, just because it's so futuristic in SpaceX and, and, and there's space in it, of course. Um, so uh, so basically, we had two teams competing to, to solve this challenge. And um, these were teams that were fairly... Um, young academics, so they were uh, master students, PhD students, uh, and what we saw there was that the team, you know, none of them were deep domain experts, and we saw that the team that sat down to, you know, use uh, Google Scholar in this case, they were just struggling because they, you know, none of them knew the the field and, and the industry yet, and they were just struggling to find the right keywords, formulate the right queries, while um, the team used, that used our tool, they could simply like take the problem statement, give that to the tool to read, and the tool will make the indexing on the fly. It's like your own self-written text of three to five hundred words describing your problem. Um, so that was like, but that was on the on the kind of young, newer researcher side. Um, we did a similar project with um, with Uniclinic Freiburg, so a urology clinic, uh, where they were all seasoned researchers and academics and domain experts. Um, but they were all experts in medical research, and the problem statement that they were exploring was how can you uh, use augmented reality in medical surgery training? So suddenly it wasn't just about the domain they knew, but you also mi mixed in AR into the picture. And there we saw something really interesting, which was both teams managed to like you know find the right uh, medical um, medical training papers. They managed to find the right even the right augmented reality papers. But the team that used our tool, they went, you know, beyond that because they realized in their kind of visual navigation of all of this, they realized that, you know, obviously there's going to be some psychology part to this too because, like, what happens when you bring, like, a big headset into a surgery room and, 
And what about kind of like FDA approaches? And, and suddenly they had like a number of different questions that they started asking and they just went a lot broader and had a much more interdisciplinary approach than the team that sat there with PubMed and kind of looked for what they knew they had to find. So is the key to success for your tool the way it, it allows for visualization of a, of a topic and the, the subtopics within it? Um, it's just, well, it's one of the, one of the things, but obviously it's the core of it is this contextual understanding. So you, you, we take the scientific text, we extract the most meaning bearing words, we enrich it with contextual synonyms and hypernyms and build out this fingerprint. Uh, then we do, I call it fingerprint matching or, um, word importance based document similarity. Um, and so we do, do document matching, uh, to pull in the right resources and then distribute it. So. The visual element is, you know, it, it's interesting, and, and I think it's hard to measure, like, what is the visual element and what is the, the kind of the, the NLP, but, but at the end of the day, one couldn't exist without the other. So, so it, it's hard to say what's what, but, but obviously, had we not been doing the, the kind of deep tech NLP in the background, we wouldn't have been able to visualize it the way we do either. Well, it sounds like it's a combination, like the, your system does some curation, it looks for contextual similarities, et cetera, and it It'll, you know, instead of just saying, show me everything, for instance, with Google Scholar, or just ranked, you know, yep. by, I don't know, relevance, it kind of does some curating, it <laughs> sounds like. And then in the way it displays it, it looks like it, it's a better way to display it than Google Scholar would. You know, Google Scholar, I've seen it just comes back with a bunch of search results, and you get to read through them and click on them and all that. But yours looks look more yep. like a tortoise shell, and it's, you know, with, with bigger and smaller yep. areas. So it's, um, I guess it's the combination of those yep. two things, would you say? I, I think so, and, and especially in the early stage of the process. So we, we do have another tool as well, which is currently uh, only ac accessible for premium clients, uh, which is, so in this, the tool, the, the turtoise shell, or the Voronoi graph, as it's called, um, graph, um, you know, you get that visual overview, and it's very helpful in the early stage, right, where you really want to just branch out and, and, and grasp as much as you can. Then, of course, you know, in this process, you know, when we see people sit and build, you know, 15 to 18 maps like that over the course of five hours, um, you end up with, say, 3,000 articles in this visual format. But, like, at some point, you, of course, have to narrow down again. And there we have a different tool, but um, which is a, a iterative um, narrowing down tool uh, based on topic modeling, where we basically show you these are the topics that your um, that your corpus falls into, what topics are relevant to to your problem or not. And then you kind of do include exclude criteria. And there it's there a very different visualization is needed, right? So the the the, the Voronoi graph is great for the explore phase. Uh, and then next step is, is very different. So we kind of try to build tools for for the process. And and it's kind of fun when, when we started the project, we were told very specifically that you're dealing with researchers. Researchers don't need UX. And we're like, everyone needs good UX. I don't know what you're talking about. So we're we're quite happy that we've we managed to do a tool that that looks looks very different, and you know, and we've been able to prove that it works. Yeah, I mean, I mean, developers and scientists, and they're all humans, and they all respond to the same uh, types of things. So yeah, they need a good user know, right? experience, just like anyone else, you know. Yep, absolutely. Hmm, okay, um, interesting. Uh, do you find what what kind of surprises do you find that you know the feedback you get from people that use this tool? You know, do they? What do they turn around and tell you? Like, huh? This was uh, this way or that way, or I didn't realize this. Like, what kind of surprises surprised even you in their responses from people? Um, I guess the fun part is when they when they find. I mean, simply when they find results that we're, they were just like not expecting at all. Uh, you know, there's this example of some some researchers 
uh, looking at LED technology and stumbled across this like particle physics uh, paper from, I can't remember exactly, but like the 70s or 80s um, from Croatia that was never cited anywhere, but they stumbled across it and was like, oh, this one actually solves the problem we're trying to solve. Uh, you know, and that's that's one of those papers they never would have found otherwise because it was the the wrong field with the wrong keywords and the wrong you know everything. But it was a solution to their problem, and I love that kind of um, serendipitous solutions that you you find when you kind of take a broad enough stance in the beginning. Okay, I guess through the search, um, keywords and topics have come up that a searcher maybe not hasn't thought of, so they can say, oh, okay, hmm, I wonder how this relates to my thing. And they can explore it and learn more about their subject area by doing that, right? Exactly. And also the the way we do the the kind of the fingerprinting of the documents, you know, you can find a document that has not a single of the same word as the text you originally wrote to describe your problem, but sure. contextually it still talks about the same thing. Okay. How did you um how did you know that this would work when you came up with this? I mean, how did, you know if um <laughs> if you don't know exactly why it helps, you must have had a feeling that this would work or an idea, like what was, what was your thought pattern in creating it? No, I mean, and, and that's, and that's you know, I don't know, it, it's not uh, fully uh, fair to say that we don't know why it works. It's more of the, of the balance between the UX and the and the, the back-end tech. But we did, you know, we did hundreds of user interviews before we got started building, you know, and we, and we mapped out, like, what are the biggest problems that the scientists are facing when it relates to, to papers published and the content and the industry and the the publishing and so we so we built a very thorough picture and and one of the things we discovered was that well you know it's as simple as like keywords suck they're great when you know exactly what you look for the moment you dealing with unknown unknowns which most of innovation and research is to a certain degree because you don't know what you're going to find before you find it um <clears throat> keywords are terrible you know we, we we build our own you know mental bias into this keyword query and we're only going to find what we can think about ourselves rather than finding what other people have thought of too, um, with other words in un other industries and, and disciplines. So so that was kind of one, you know, we, we observed that problem very clearly. So that was the problem we set out to solve. And, and doing the, the natural language understanding algorithms that we've done or, you know, built, it was very clear to us that this would, uh, this would probably make a big difference. And then it was fun when we saw the first experiments come in and saw that, oh, it does make a difference. Absolutely. Interesting. Okay, so let's. Uh, well, we're we're just about to get to Project IR, but um, what stage are you at with these tools? Like, who is using them primarily, and uh, you know, what kind of again, you, you've done some cha uh, contests, but what kind of feedback are you getting from industry? Are you at that point yet where you're licensing and selling this yes. technology for industry? Yes, we are. So we have a, a number of industry clients, um, mainly kind of uh, larger R and D heavy institutions. Uh, we have. Um, you know, one of the world's largest energy producers, um, some, uh, you know, aircraft engine manufacturers. Uh, we have several uh, universities, mainly in Finland, uh, for some reason, uh, probably because our sales rep is Finnish. So, um, or one of our sales reps is Finnish. Um, so, so we've got, you know, we got both academia and, you know, corporate R&D on our client list. Um, we're delivering both trials, so like a, a one to three month trial, and then uh, the yearly license afterwards. So we're, we're, Generating revenues, uh, not quite profitable yet, but uh, but generating revenues and, and getting getting fairly ready to scale that up. Okay. Right, so tell me about uh, Project IRE. What's, what's this about? Yeah. So um, 
the idea for the project, I guess it's been there for a while, right? I told you we did these like hundreds of interviews and, and really understood what was wrong with the with, with the academic world. Um, mm -hmm. and, and we've been fine with kind of developing our tools and, and, and doing what we do. We got to a point last summer where we kind of realized that, you know, <laughs> we started the company as an impact company. And we got to kind of last summer and, and we realized that, you know, selling B2B software to like big oil companies isn't exactly going to make the world a better place. You know, don't get me wrong. We have a lot of fun working with these corporates. It's just like it doesn't really get us to where we want to go to, which is like really change the change the everyday life of scientists and academics so they can uh, focus on what really matters. Right. Um, and a couple of the things we saw in the industry is that there is this incredibly misaligned incentive process right now where a, a researcher when they so they have to what they call publisher pairs right you need to get your research paper out to do so you need to get it into as fancy of a journal as possible uh, ideally like a tier one journal because with a tier one journal you get the points you need you use those points in your next application for funding uh, and when you get that funding grant then you actually have a secure job for the next two to four years or however long your project is. So there's this like eternal race to just like get pro get your research paper out. And there's there's several implications of that system. Um, one of them is that um, you are kind of um, incentivized to polish your results a little bit. You know, it, and it might even be subconsciously, but if you need to get into a top tier journal, you want your results to sound, you know, quite wowing you know you want you want the wow factor and it you know it might be it might be tempting to leave out a couple of details of restrictions and and boundaries and, and limits to your method right uh, so that's one thing and the other thing is of course that all of these uh, tier one journals are owned by a, a small number very few um big and powerful publishing houses so like elsevier nature springer and a handful of others and these publishing houses they bundle these journals and they sell it back to the universities like they don't pay the academics for publishing, they sell these uh, journals back to the universities at these crazy prices. You know, Elsevier last year made uh, almost a billion U.S. Uh, no, sorry, British pounds in a profit at like a forty percent profit margin. And it's important to understand that these are our tax money, right? We pay for research with our tax money. Elsevier takes that and charges universities again our tax money, tons of money for access to the content that would all, was already produced at these universities. It is a business model that when we were back in kind of the paper and pen ages, that business model made sense because it was a lot of management and a lot of physical product, literally, that was shipped around. Today, they're just we're just like stuck in this like almost monopolized industry, uh, which is a detriment to, I would say, all of humanity because all of this, these amazing breakthroughs are hidden behind paywalls and not accept, uh, not accessible to most people. And that's a major issue. Um, so anyway, we, we were frustrated with this. You know, us selling B2B software isn't going to solve that problem. <laughs> uh, and that's where, where Project Ire was born. I'm sorry, that was a little bit of a rant. But uh, <laughs> that's, well, that's uh, fine. That's, I mean, that's that's there the was the case of, um, in the legal world, maybe it was either scientific or legal, a guy named Aaron Schwartz uh, that, you know, felt the same yep. way, and he actually downloaded a whole bunch of uh, papers from, you know, one site that had them, and he ended up getting, you know, sued by the federal government, and he ended up killing himself, so it's a, it's a big deal, and access to, uh, exactly. and, to and, this data that should and, be public should be public. You know? Exactly, and, and there's, I mean, that story is so ugly, too, and he was initially prosecuted locally, and then 
something happened, and we don't quite know what, but obviously the U.S. has a very strong lobbying culture, right? So somehow the charges locally was dropped and brought up on a federal level, and, and he was facing 25 years and uh, as a felon. And it, it's, it's just a terrible and tragic story. And yeah, this is these are the forces we're kind of up against. You know, it's a very powerful industry um, that are, you know, hogging something that is like arguably belongs in the commons, belongs to all of us, that that science that we've all paid yeah. for with our tax money already to the advancement of, of humankind. So, yeah, it's it's a terrible industry. Uh, it really is. So what do you hope that the effect of a virus will have? I mean, the parts that aren't behind, you know, I, I mean, you're not going behind the paywalls, I guess, but you know, the parts that aren't behind paywalls, there's still plenty of them. So I guess you're hoping that with better curation and tools to access it, that the other paywall stuff will become less relevant and, and more people will have a chance to, to get useful science to improve things. Well, so there's that. But then there's also this Project IRE, which is a new project, because we, we saw that, like, just having tools to navigate isn't enough. Um, so what we're proposing with Project IRE, which is a, a blockchain project, we've been working on the, the design of the of the system and the and the the economy, which is what it really is, right? Which what which is what blockchain uh, enables. Uh, so we're essentially issuing a token, the IRE token, on top of Ethereum. Um, that IRE token will be uh, the the community currency or the community tokens um, mm. that eventually um, and. You know, there's there's plenty of blockchain projects out there that are trying to do this, like academics publishing on the blockchains, because it's, you know, you, you will have a timestamp for when things are public, published, and et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of benefits to it. But we don't really believe that you can just, you know, build a better pay, you know, build a better publishing system and people will come because you have a major chicken and egg problem and an incentive mechanism that isn't in place. So what we're doing with this community, we're, we're building a community of academics and researchers where the core of the community is what we call a knowledge validation engine, which is kind of the next step of our technology, an engine where you can input a you know, problem statement or a full research paper or an R&D report and have it validated up against all other research in the world. And, and what that means is that we'll take the, the full text of the article, break it down into a hypothesis structure, so problem, solution, evaluation, result, for example, We'll fingerprint the same way we do, similar way we do now, we'll fingerprint each of them. Then we do, uh, arg we're going to do argument mining where you, you extract kind of each building block of the paper and you match those building blocks with all of the building blocks in all of the other papers. Then you can backtrack multiple layers kind of back in, in, in knowledge uh, and with mm -hmm. that build a, a trust score of this paper. Like, how likely is it that this paper is going to be reproducible? How many limits and constraints will this will, will the results placed in this paper have? And, and this is essentially, you can also call it like a peer review tool or a review tool where, that validates this, this knowledge. And we want to build this knowledge, this knowledge validation engine with a community. It's going to be community governed. It's going to be community owned. Um, the tokens that are connected to this, this um, participation in the community uh, it will be capped at 2%, which means no entity, including us as an as initiator, no entity can own more than 2% because no entity, no company can own the truth. Uh, and so this is an open source, uh, open community governed um, engine. And with that engine, over time, we'll build up value in this community, which means at some point, this these tokens in this community will be worth enough that it is worth it for an academic a researcher to publish through this tool and publish open access through this platform rather than going with existing incentive structure. 
And when you do that, you're building up this incredibly valuable um, validated repository of science that will be this living body of science that can be regularly checked up on by, by running this knowledge validation engine again and again on all of the content. Um, and then you have changed the incentive structure of, of science. And then you can also, of course, do peer review, where peer reviewers can actually transparently uh, peer review and both get you know, financial rewards and you know, credibility from their peer review, et cetera. And by designing this ecosystem from scratch, uh, we can build a, a much fairer model where we kind of simply, rather than try to fix the system as it is now, because I don't think that's possible, you just build a new system on the side and have people jump over to that when they're ready. Right. Well, you know, it's funny, I was thinking about how papers will have references to other papers and all that. And I guess with the tool, you could see the, the heritage of ideas, you know, which papers were quoted most and which papers relied on other papers and where they came from, and you create like the tree of, uh, of scientific thought from it. With your language processing, you know, I, like I, I thought immediately, oh, I could just stuff a whole bunch of BS um, references into a paper, but then no, because your language processing will identify if those are relevant or not, or, you know, if they're just BS. So I, I could see how it would help with the curation of these papers as well. Exactly. And, and, and today people kind of do that, right? So the, uh, the provider we use for all of the papers we're connected to is a project called CORE. Um, they did a study that found that something like 15% of citations only are actually related to the problem in the paper. Everything else really? is, is, is fluff, really, right? It's, it's really? about citing so the right people. Is that much right... is fluff stuff? Yeah, I mean, it's, and it's, it's, not, it's not fluff to fluff it up, but it, it's like, you know, you, you cite your, your collaboration partners, there's this conference hmm. you want to get into, there's this interesting article you read last year that you think is really cool. Like, it, it, it's not all of, it's not like fake, but it's just like, it's not core knowledge that is directly related. And so when, by bypassing that system entirely at this moment, and in this validation engine, it's kind of like, it's the intent of the citation system, except we look at the actual core component in the paper, which also means that let's say you write about a protein for a medical application, right? Or, you know, and, and then we find, you know, the, the knowledge validation engine can find talks about that protein in entirely different contexts that you yourself might not be aware of. So it's not just about backtracking who people have cited, because again, that's based on human knowledge that is limited. But if we can connect it with everything, everything, we can actually, um, you know, backtrack the knowledge in a, in a much better way. Well, I can see why, too, the traditional way of, you know, if I'm researching a subject and I look at papers, you know, if I'm ambitious, then I'm going to look at all their references and go into them and to them and to them. So not only is it like a ton of stuff for me to look at and that bifurcates into millions of things, but a lot of it are dead ends or garbage. So, I mean, this sounds like yep. your system, if it uses this, it would make research, no wonder why it makes it so much faster and better and more targeted, because it doesn't look at yep. just the references, but it looks to see if they're dead ends and if they're relevant, which is really cool. Exactly, and you will you will get kind of a when when the system and it's, it's about a four year development roadmap for this validation engine and uh, and but at at the end of it you're going to see you know a trust score and you're going to have you know flagged every potential issue and you can see you can really like in the blink of a moment get a thorough overview like should I trust this paper or not is it likely that it's reducible. Uh, are there any glaring mistakes? Are there any potential issues? Like, what should I be aware of? And you don't have to backtrack all the knowledge because you have all of that in a validation report right in front of you. Well, you think you're going to get any uh, pushback or haters that are going to say, hey, you're making us look bad. You know, this paper came from so-and-so, and he's 
his reputation is impeccable and you're saying that you know it was 80% fluff <laughs> well as i mean so the beauty of this right because with with blockchain technology we're also able to um to utilize the the pseudonymity aspect of it right and there's some really interesting you know experiments we can do around that for example um you know if if someone publishes blindly uh you know if it, let's say a stanford professor publishes you know pseudonymously and we actually don't know who they are um you know will will the paper be received in the same way and and vice versa you know we can even we can even allow researchers that live in areas that you know let's say you're a political science researcher um who lives in an area where you know political opinion might not be popular at all times you can actually publish synonymously and and have your paper out there even if um you know even if you live in a regime that wouldn't wouldn't appreciate it but it is it is going to be really interesting to see what this new approach does to like you know might there be a, a paper from you know from a university in in Tanzania that is just as good as you know something that was published at Stanford you know time will tell um and it will be really interesting to see i wonder if it's going to do anything if you have people that uh you know teach to the test or um you know they 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 would normally publish a paper one way but they use your system to make sure that the paper has you know i just wonder um i don't know if there's any way to game the system to give you know still make a crap paper that looks like it has lots of citations like you know i i i apologize for thinking this way but you know what if like no, no, uh, i'm I, doing a paper you know what if i'm doing a paper on something and i use your system and then i say ooh look it looks like your system says a b c d e f g are relevant so i'm going to put them in as references so now not only will i get a really high trust factor even though you know i said nothing about those references i just threw them in i mean i guess it does help people reading the paper but it also allows me to kind of game your system and may it look like a highly trusted so, paper when it may not be, you know. Right. Well, so so we don't use we don't actually use the citation system at this moment and likely we won't be using it in the future as well, right? So so you so that would not be a way to game the system uh because it wouldn't it wouldn't get you anywhere. It might get you somewhere with other search engines, but not with a knowledge validation. Um okay. so 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 there's that. Um but so is there going to be ways to game the system? Isn't there always ways to game systems? You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I don't I think mean, we can build a system. But what what is what is beautiful, I think, about the combination of, of open source AI on a community-governed blockchain is that everything will be open and transparent. So all of these algorithms will be open and transparent to the community, which means every pr single person can go in and find those loopholes and vet them and report them and challenge them and build new ones or not build new loopholes but build <laughs> build better algorithms that don't have those loopholes right so it's not like we have to sit and monitor everything this is a community effort um and that's the beauty of it that you you know sure people are going to find mistakes hopefully it's it's people that belong to the community are going to find the loopholes and then fix them and improve them yeah what's um you know do you guys keep all the uh, people the search queries of the people that use your free tool that just occurred to me and like you know, if you're looking at them, are you seeing any unusual patterns or anything? Or, you know, just being on the inside of this machine, you know, I'm always curious to know, like, what interesting things have you seen that you didn't know before that surprised you? Well, I mean, these are often personal data, right? So we, and we work with big corporates that have, you know, a, a requirement of this data to be private. So I, mm. <laughs> uh, I have personally not gone in and, and you know, looked at it and, and uh, most of it is very, uh, very well protected. So, so we don't really have uh, anything to report on that front. <laughs> you know, m most of R and D is is you know secretive for a while at least. 
Yeah, I got you. But are there any insights you have that, again, surprise you? You know, now that you're in the thick of it versus when you started the project, you know, did your assumptions hold up or things are very different than you thought they would be at first? I mean, this has nothing to do really with our product. What I am super excited about right now, right, is that the work we do with Project IRE and this opening up of science and the knowledge validation engine falls into, like, the, the open access movement, right? And we started the company three years ago. People told us, ah, oh, we've been working with open access for 20 years, but it's going to be another freaking 20 years before anything happens because this is, you know, this is never going to work, right? Uh, when we con connected this core database to our tool, it had about 2 million open access papers, and we're like, 2 million is not too bad. Today, that collection has 129 million, right? So we we're talking, of, you know, I haven't even counted the n number manifold, right? But multiple, multiple times as many. And there's interesting movements, like right before Christmas, so Elsevier is one of the most powerful actors in this space. Right before Christmas, 200 German universities went together and refused to pay their Elsevier bills for the year or for for the coming wow. year. And Elsevier was like, oh, damn it, what do we what do we do now? And they're, you know, still kind of frantically um, negotiating that, right? A week ago, the Swedish, you know, purchasing consortium for all of their universities went out and declined another Elsevier contract because they're like, you don't meet our national standards. Uh, the French are doing the same. The Norwegians are also talking about it, right? There's this like country after country that's saying, saying you know what, enough is enough. These payment models aren't working. And so, mm. so we kind of started in this movement that felt a little dead in the water, and now suddenly, like, it is all happening right at once. The European Union has a, a vision to within, you know, by 2020, so, you know, a year and a half, uh, they want to make sure every single paper that is published with the backing of EU money has to be open access. All science published published within the European Union should be public. You know, should be open access. Like this movement is incredible, and it's happening right now. And and we're in an incredibly unique position to not just leverage it, but have a role to play. Very exciting. Yeah. What percentage um, do you think is open access versus uh, behind paywalls? And are there certain uh, um, genres of science that are really bad, and other ones that are a lot more open? Yeah, so you have like, I mean, in AI, it's like 95% open access, right? Or And, and also because it's usually a pre-publishing, which is also one of the problems, right? It takes you at least nine months to get your paper published, if not up to 18 months. The AI field are like, yeah, you know, we don't we don't have time for this uh, because by the time that paper comes out behind a paywall, you know, it's already outdated. So everything right. is going on, on pre-publishing, on, on archive and, and the likes. Um, so there's actually a new... Uh, Nature Springer proposed this new journal for machine learning papers in connection with this conference, and they were going to paywall it. And there's like um, there's like two and a half thousand people having signed this petition, promising to not publish their papers in in that in that paper uh, in that journal because nice. yeah they they're not going to have it. So um, so yeah so that's that's one field that's very open, and there's other fields that are more or less entirely closed. Overall, really? it's really hard to find numbers. We've been looking for those numbers for years, but the again, these are very powerful players, and they don't want those numbers out there. They don't want those graphs. So really, no one knows. But again, anecdotally, from 2 million to 129 million over three years, which is quite remarkable. Of course, part of that is just the collection work, but we're now seeing it all in one, and it, it, it looks good. <laughs> What, 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 I mean, I, can you say the fields that are like seem to be the worst ones, even if you don't have numbers, or if you say so, will they come get um, you and you know beat you up? Or something? <laughs> well, 
No, I, I, I honestly don't really know. Maybe also because I'm most I'm most enthusiastic about the fields that have the most open access <laughs> for natural mm -hmm. reasons. Um, so, so I mean, um, I, I would like guess medicine is one of those that are more close, but I might also be entirely wrong on that. Um, so, okay. so don't don't hold that. Again. I gotcha. All right. Well, very good. Um, what uh, you know? Let's give some resources to listeners. I'm really glad you're doing what you're doing, by the way, and it's great you have a passion for this, this open knowledge because, I mean, all humanity can benefit. You know, why, uh, yep. I mean, it's probably one of the most terrible things to lock away is knowledge that could help people. So it's really good that you're doing this. Um, Thank you. What are some resources for people? Where can, how can they use the free tool you have? How can they find out about premium? You know, talk to you about potential collaboration. What are some links yep. resources? So, so a couple of resources. So Iris, I-R-I-S. Dot AI is our website, and that's just the main website. You can find that there. If you go to the.iris.ai, that's our free tool. Uh, and then, of course, it's Project IR, um, where actually just in, a, in just a few days, we'll be opening up uh, what's called an airdrop uh, for tokens for people who are actively engaged in opening up science, can, can sign a pledge to, to you know, make their future promise that they want to do everything they they can to to both publish open access and and be part of the movement, uh, and and they're going to earn tokens and get their first tokens from that. Um, as so as we launch the token sale, they'll already have some some tokens. Um, so so that's exciting. Uh, and for those who who want to participate and learn more about that, you can go to projectir.com. So project a i u r dot com is that address. Um, and, and pretty much everything, um, everything else of information is, is on our website. So, so people can check, check that out and also find us on Twitter and Telegram and, and all, of the, all of the channels. Yeah, and well, that's good. You said the free tool is at the Iris AI or is it D? I, I didn't the, hear as in T-H-E. T-H-E dot Iris dot AI. Oh, the, okay, the, the, all right, gotcha. Yeah, the, the Iris. Oh, very good. Anita, Anita, thank you. Thank you so much. I won't re-say your middle and last names because all it would do is <laughs> hurt people's ears, but, you know, thanks again for coming. This is great. Thank you so much for having me again. Coming to Dallas, Texas, September 14th, 15th, and 16th, 2018, the Blockchain and Future Tech Expo. This is going to be a gigantic conference of over 5,000 people. We're going to be talking about blockchain and its applications. We're going to be talking about quantum computing, cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, and several other future technologies that are poised to and actually changing our lives as we speak. Here's why you should attend. As you may know, early adopters are the ones that investigated and profited from things like the gold rush in the 1800s from the dot-com boom in the 1990s from the internet boom in 2005, from the smartphone explosion in 2007, from the real estate boom that ended in 2008, and of course, from the Bitcoin boom that started in 2012. Early adopters act now. They don't wait till later. They go out west first in their covered wagons. They find the biggest gold nuggets. If you consider yourself an early adopter and you want to find the biggest nuggets, then you owe it to yourself to attend this upcoming conference. Blockchain is going to affect how we control and store our medical data, how we send money around the world, how we bank, and more. But artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and cybersecurity will play a pivotal role in our lives as well. And that's why our next event, September 14th to the 16th at the Dallas Convention Center, is going to have not only 5,000 plus attendees, but will showcase blockchain, AI, cybersecurity, quantum computing, and more. 
You want to get in on the coming gold rush of future tech and opportunity as an early adopter. Don't be left out. To register, go to BFTExpo.com. That's BlockchainFutureTechExpo.com. Thank you. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, both to review to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.